I think as a kid, I didn't really appreciate. You know, I remember as a kid when I lived in El Salvador, hearing the bombs and the gunshots and people running on the roof and us hiding underneath our beds. Like as a kid, it didn't click in. Like us saying, like we're hungry, and they're like, "Hey, you know, like we need to wait because we come outside." Like there's stuff happening outside, and our uncle like hiding and running to just go get bread. Uh, sorry, I always start getting emotional about you know some of this stuff, but. As a kid, didn't really appreciate what my parents in their early 20s you know, were going through. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Mr. Miata, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk to serial entrepreneur and commodities trader Rafa Martinez. Rafa is on his way to be a billionaire, which is bonkers. He got massive success by trading natural commodities on the stock market and starting businesses. I have no clue how people get rich trading natural commodities, and we're going to find out in this episode. But life hasn't always been so easy for Rafa. When he was 12, he immigrated to the U.S. from El Salvador with his family, escaping crime and violence from the Civil War. They came to the U.S. with a dream of a better life and future, but started from scratch working minimum wage jobs and living in a one-and-a-half-bedroom apartment together as a family. Rafa has one of the most touching rags to riches stories I've ever heard. Can't wait for you to check it out. If you're interested in learning more about Rafa and his amazing cars, Check him out on Instagram at Rafa Martinez 812. That's R-A-F-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z 812. And Rafa's got a racing club. Yes, a racing club, RafaRacing.club. If you've ever wanted to learn about how to get massive success after losing everything, you'll love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you'll take away. One, Rafa's no BS explanation of how he actually became a millionaire trading natural gas. Two, why Rafa feels no stress, even in high-risk situations. Three, how Rafa lost $60 million in three weeks and made back $180 million. Enjoy those two things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you're subscribed to my email list. That's okdork.com. We put out exclusive content each and every week just for the email subscribers. Go to okdork.com and sign up. And if you want to start your own business but you don't know what to do, check out my course, Monthly 1K. I think it's 20 bucks now. It might go up, but it's only 20 for a limited time. And it's helped thousands of people start their businesses, accountability, support. It's how I got started with AppSumo.com and all the lessons learned from my failures. I do believe it will help you too. Head over to okdork.com slash monthly1k to sign up. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener E. Wheaton. He left review saying, one of my favorite podcasts. I love this podcast. I love how some of them are an hour, but then sometimes it's just a quick few minutes of great info. Keep it up, Noah. I love you. And I love everyone who gorgeous listeners. Plus, the show seems to be growing lately. So send one of the episodes you've liked to a friend via text. And if you want me to shout you on a future episode, just tell me that you sent this to a friend or leave a review wherever you enjoy the show. I check every single one of them. Can you share your business story? Sure. I'm Rafael Martinez. I uh, was born in El Salvador, been in the States, in Houston, specifically for 26 years. I started in the energy business out of college. I trade natural gas for a living. That's primarily what I do. And with that, I've been able to invest in numerous companies and do some startups of my own, all the way from fitness to racing to construction and tech. And so, yeah, I'm more, I guess, in the investment field at this point, but I still trade natural gas and I still have a big group and a book of business that I run. Nice. And you're in super in car racing. And I'm super into car racing, yeah. That's how we connected on the previous, one of the YouTube videos, which is amazing. So let, let's go back to the beginning of this. And I, natural gas, you're the second person we've met on this channel who got wealthy from natural gas. So I want to understand what actually that means. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But going back to the beginning, like, why did your parents decide to move here from El Salvador when you were 12? Yeah, so that was like in 97. We had a civil war, late 80s, early 90s. 
there was a lot of crime and violence kind of erupted from that stability in the economy and just think that they were just looking for, you know, to provide us a better future. Uh, and we had fortune to uh, have had family that were able to support us to come here and claim us as dependents through my dad. And ultimately, you know, he was able to bring the family. How was that for you? How'd you feel about the decision? Were you pissed? Were you happy? I was pretty upset as a kid. You know, I was 12. I had my friends and we loved living back home. And we were coming to a country that, you know, that we didn't really know, a language that we didn't know. Uh, my mom had some family in Canada. And I know like my dad and her were going back and forth on where to go. But ultimately, we decided to come to the States. And, you know, as a kid, you don't really have an option. Obviously, you're telling your parents, like, no, we don't want to move. You know, we're going to hate it. But, you know, so glad that they did, especially when they did. Just, you know, the way that life turned out after the fact and just how the country struggled for a couple of decades. Like, it's doing much better now. But it was a really hard time for a couple of decades after we left. What were some of the struggles early on when you got here with you and with your family? I think the biggest issue that we had as a family was my parents, you know, they weren't well off back home by any means, but they had some form of somewhat of a professional life uh, where they went to an office space where, you know, they were in sales and found ways to, you know, to essentially have somewhat of a profession. Uh, by coming here and knowing the language, they went from like, you know, having a decent job to my dad being a busboy and kind of learning the language and going from like, you know, being able to afford things to working for, you know, for minimum wage and working your way up and learning essentially just a whole new career and a whole new, you know, anything that we studied and, you know, that they studied in El Salvador didn't really translate as a degree here. So, you know, even though my mom was an executive assistant in El Salvador for, you know, pretty high executive at Coca-Cola, for example, in El Salvador, she came here and she was like, what do I do? And so it was kind of started from the bottom up in a sense. Us as kids, I think it was easier because we went to school, we had fun. We learned the language and kind of got moved into the culture a lot easier. But I know my parents had some challenging times. You know, there was times when my dad worked the night shift, my mom worked the day shift. And so they would just essentially tag and they wouldn't see each other very much. Being a Hispanic family and culture, they always felt the need to like take care of the kids and be always there. So, you know, he worked at Igloo at some point in, in the manufacturing process. And, you know, he went from, you know, having his own small business to essentially working for minimum wage here. Do you remember like not getting presents or not having food? Food, I would say, has never really necessarily been an issue in our life, fortunately. But yeah, having clothes, you know, running around with like holes in our shoes, wearing my dad's clothes. We used to go to the garage sales and, you know, go look for decorations for the house and things like that. We used to walk to McDonald's and things like that when we didn't have cars. And, you know, like it was going to McDonald's was a big thing, you know, family going out to eat kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there was times when, we slept on the floor on, you know, pillow tops that they bought at a, at a garage sale. So, you know, we, we had our times, but <laughs> yeah. Wow. Hard work and, you know, just being, I guess, you know, just a good person. Something, you know, it's one of the things that my parents and my dad, you know, it's always been insistent of. And, you know, fortunately, everything's paid off. What did you learn from them when you observed this as a kid? I think as a kid, I didn't really appreciate. You know, I remember as a kid when I lived in El Salvador. Hearing the bombs and the gunshots and people running on the roof and us hiding underneath our beds. Like, as a kid, it didn't click in. Like, us saying, like, we're hungry and they're like, hey, you know, like, we need to wait because we come outside. Like, there's stuff happening outside. And our uncle, like, hiding and running to just go get bread. Uh, sorry. I always start getting emotional about, you know, some of this stuff. But as a kid, didn't really appreciate what my parents in their early 20s. You know, we're going through, which I look back and it's like, you know, when all this thing was happening, my mom was like 22, 23, which is, you know, it's pretty insane that, you know, that they were going through at such a young age. But 
after they kind of overcame the war and we started having, you know, some form of means, like we never had gifts. Like for Christmas, I don't remember my parents ever being able to wrap a gift. It was always like, you know, go buy your new, <clears throat> sorry, it happens every time. I'd go buy like your new outfit for the year. And so we would get a new shirt, pair of pants and shoes. And like that was our Christmas present. It was like a new outfit. And then, you know, over the years, they started doing better themselves and started being able to provide a little bit more. But, you know, those were some of the earliest memories that I have as a kid and, and just the struggles. And, you know, fortunately, we always had a, a house. We always had food. But there was actually, obviously, you know, like no luxury items and things like that that, you know, that we really enjoyed. So we'd run around the streets with holes in their shoes and socks that were torn from, like, running on them, you know? Damn it. Crazy. Yeah. And so did you learn, like, the value of hard work did you learn like oh wow there's no bombs in america i think the value of hard work and just my dad always taught us if you're going to do something do it right the first time you know put your maximum effort don't waste your time doing something halfway so even as we were going through school and we would do like our homework and my dad would review it every night and if he didn't like the handwriting he like literally would erase the entire thing you redo your homework and so when it was numbers and we did math problems if he didn't like the numbers and you know they weren't aligned perfectly he didn't raise the whole math problem, have you redo it. And so he was pretty strict from that standpoint. And I think his message was always, I'm never going to leave you with a ton of money. I'm not going to leave you with wealth, but I can leave you with work ethic and education to the degree that I can. I think obviously seeing them struggle and work hard has been just a prime example of what they can achieve because now they're, you know, they're doing much better now, even at their age. And, you know, they've instilled that in us and, you know, my brother and sister and, and I have, you know, have all succeeded in our own ways. Yeah, that's powerful. <laughs> I yeah. tell you. What was it like growing up in the U.S. as an immigrant? You know, I think that, you know, when I came here at the age of 12, I was in seventh grade. I think for us, it wasn't too challenging as a kid, particularly that we were good kids. We stayed out of trouble and we did our homework and studied hard and, you know, kind of picked up the language fairly quickly. So I went from not knowing English to being able to, you know, be in an honors class by ninth grade. So a year and a half after being here, I was like in honors classes, just focusing on education and focusing on the future and having my parents and my dad being there for us as a support system to do it. You know, a lot of people that come here come alone sometimes, or they come with parents who weren't educated at all. And they come into a system that's challenging for them. And the kids end up doing sort of like their own thing and not really focusing on school. So I think the fact that my parents did support that and focused on it made our life a lot easier. And we all also, you know, were driven in our own way to kind of get better and have a desire to do better in life. So, you know, I went through high school to the honors program and all that stuff. So when I came to the States and they put us in school, we were in the English and second language classes, the ESL classes. And it was all minorities, primarily Hispanics. Uh, there was some Asian, you know, population there from, you know, different parts of Vietnam and all the places that, you know, China that come. And we were all sort of like learned to talk to each other, even though we didn't know English and each other's languages. But by the time I graduated high school, I graduated number 10 out of about 400 people in my class. But there was a lot of people, which was sad for me to say that we're still in those classes that had been in those classes when I came. So, you know, they just never really got out of the system. They barely still knew how to speak English. They weren't fluent in English yet. They've been here for much longer than I had. And a lot of it probably had to do with the fact that, you know, they probably just didn't have the support at home that we were fortunate to have. What was your dream as a kid? Because I'm imagining, one of the things I was imagining, if you see your parents struggling, and, and I think as a kid, you may not realize the sacrifice they made mm -hmm. to give up, like, their heritage and their family and their culture to be like, I want a better life for you. Like, did you have a dream, like, 
all right, I'm going to make it and take care of them? Or what were you thinking as a kid? Growing up, I always in my head wanted to be like an engineer and, you know, I loved cars and planes. And so I thought I would be, you know, designing or flying planes at some point. And my desire was always to be able to support my parents as they age and as I grew bigger or older. So I never really had really a dream of anything in particular other than I knew that I was going to do something great one day or that I was going to be able to support my parents one day because like I wasn't going to stop until I did. And I was doing all the homework at the time. You know, as a kid, your only job is to do good in school. And so I was doing that. I was in a straight A student kind of stuff. And I just knew that I was going to stick with whatever it was. And hopefully it all paid out. And, you know, over the years, you just continue to do it. So. What was your parents' attitude? Was it like positive? Did you ever see them being like struggling? Like, because I imagine it sounds like a really tough time. Yeah, they were positive. And, you know, and I even look back and remember like in high school when things were trendy and I was like, you know, I want some Tommy Hilfiger shoes. I want, you know, I want all the brand names that were popular at the time, like Polo and Ruff Warren and all these things. And my dad would somehow find a way to buy us stuff by sacrificing, whether it was working overtime, whether it was second job, whether it was him not buying himself anything. Not that he would buy us a ton, but like he'd buy us a shirt. At the time, it was like, you know, 65 bucks. And I looked back and I was like, man, that's almost a whole day's worth of work for my dad. But at the time, I wasn't thinking about it. I just wanted a shirt because I didn't understand truly the economic situation my parents were in. But I do remember talking to them and, you know, they used to make eight fifty an hour. And I'm over here asking for like a $70 shirt because that was a cool thing to do in high school. That's what people were wearing, you know, Abercrombie. <laughs> I didn't want to go to the dollar store to buy shirts. And I think that, you know, I saw the sacrifices and I saw the stress that some of those things put on my dad in particular because he was the one that always managed their finances and kind of oversaw everything. But their attitude was always positive and wanting to give us everything because, you know, they never had anything as kids. You know, my dad grew up in a family of 12 kids all in a small room, you know, laid essentially on top of each other, struggling for food, not finding, you know, my dad's mom was a single mom with 12 kids. I've only met half my dad's siblings because they never made it to adulthood. And she was a single mom. And so like my dad was the only one that actually went to school. He never graduated college, but he was the only one that actually proceeded with a technical education, did half a degree. Everybody else never went to school. So he was the first one to go to school. To high school, right? And in college. So he actually did some technical schooling, but then he got, you know, he started having a family with my mom and ended up not, not finishing school. My dad has always had some form of technical and I would call it engineering ability, but real technical ability because he actually did go to school and, and studied. The rest of the family never went to school. He knew what it took to kind of get there. You know, he'd work late at night with a candle doing his drafting for like a engineering class or for like a technical class. And he worked on a workbench with like a candlelight while like his brothers and sisters slept in the same room. Just crazy stuff. And so like he's always been like a perfectionist about everything because of that. There any other crazy stories like that? Like I don't think people <laughs> realize like doing candlelight to actually get your work done. And, and Yeah. And I mean, that's, that was my dad, you know, like, he's the only one. And so, you know, to this day, he supports his brothers and sisters because, you know, the ones that are still alive, because they're the reason why he was able to go to school because he was able to go to school and, you know, he was one of the younger ones. And so, you know, he's to this day still supports him. He knows that he wouldn't have been able to go to school or be sort of where he is now without the support of them, you know, making the sacrifices. Like said, hey, you go to school, we'll go to work kind of thing and support the family. But yeah, you know, they had a lot more challenging than we even did. Two things around that. When you got to America, we were living in like one bedroom. And then do you remember like how much they actually made a year? When we came to the States, we had family here that we stayed with for a short while. And then we got a apartment. I remember the apartment rent was like 450 bucks a month. 
and it was my sister, my brother and I, my sister, I have an older sister and, and my parents. And then it was like a one and a half bedroom apartment. They will have been making minimum wage at the time. Oh, they're about so six, seven bucks an hour or whatever that, you know. So like 20,000 a year combined or something like that. Yeah, you know, something like that. Yeah, 25,000 combined. And then they slowly progressed from there. And, you know, I remember at some point when they both were making $10 an hour, it was like a big deal because it was like, we kind of made it in a sense. You know, like we have some money now. And I mean, it was nothing, but we were able to buy a car and do some things with the family and small trips and stuff. Just a quick contrast. So you lived in, you said 400 square feet or it was like a one and a half bedroom? One and a half, yeah. Roughly, Small apartment complex, yeah. And roughly how big is your house now? Well, my current house is about 5,000 square feet. <laughs> and I'm the only one that's, you know, it's a bit bigger than that. So you're the only one, sorry. I'm building another one, a house that has under construction that's a, a bit bigger than that. How does that make you feel reflecting on that? It's kind of crazy, you know, just looking back. And obviously, like, I know the work that I've put in to sort of achieve what I have. But it's just happened so quickly over the last, you know, decade in a sense. But it's, it is pretty crazy just to think the fact that, you know, I've achieved what I have and, you know, we have freedom to never have to worry about anything. I've kind of set my family for life in a sense. And it's pretty crazy just to think about, you know, where we've come from and, you know, the, the dreams that I had as a kid of like, you know, I want to be a millionaire one day. And now, you know, like, you know, you, you do that. And I was like, okay, I want to be a billionaire one day. And then like, you know, you're on your, well on your way to do that. And it's just like hard work just continues to pay off and treating people right. And, and you know, just kind of being selective about the people that, you know, that you surround yourself with is pretty important. So it's been a wild ride and looking back to it is just crazy. And, you know, I've invested in my parents' home now and kind of created their dream home with my mom was always wanted to have a pool. And I, you know, just last year we put a pool in her house and she wanted to have canopy and like, like a, you know, like a covered patio. So we put a covered patio in the pool last year. And so, you know, they, they both actually work for me now. They must be really sure. proud of you. Yeah. They must be really proud and like that for them to to see like we took this chance, we took this risk, we suffered, we struggled and sacrificed and then to see you, you know, be able to succeed. And yeah. It seems like you for yourself and then for your family. I don't think that I ever really sit back and truly kind of appreciate everything that I've done uh, or what I do for people. But yeah, I mean, you know, when you, I sit down and look at it and think about just like, you know, it's just how crazy life is now. And having the you know the freedom to do whatever you want and never have to worry about it is just pretty crazy. It is. So coming, you were you were talking about a little bit like how you sort of you got success. So let's go back to the beginning of that and making it in the USA. So how did you make your first million? Trading natural gas. I went to school, University of Houston, studied finance and economics. I did a master's of science in finance as well that was focused in markets and, and energy trading. And I went and worked for a firm that we did natural gas trading. We did logistics where we were buying and selling the actual molecule serving end users, producers, and kind of connecting the dots in the physical grid, as well as trading the, you know, the, the futures and the, and the forward markets. And I started there as an intern. And at the age of 25, I guess I'd been there for four, four and a half years, I became the head of the region of the book that I was working for. And from there, I just continued to dive into the market and had a good, I'd say, pulse on the market. And we were able to be pretty successful. So I think I made my first million when I was 29 as a trader, trading natural gas. You're the second person doing natural gas training or energy training. What does that actually mean? I put it into sort of like when people trade stocks, right? People have an idea of what a stock is. But if you only purely trade it financially, all it is is a financial product. It doesn't really mean anything. But behind the stock, there's like a company that actually does operations. So you can buy Apple stock. And to you, you win if that stock goes up and you're like, okay, awesome. I made money doing, you know, paper trading because like all you do is that. But then 
Apple itself has to run all these operations to make that stock go up. And so in the actual community of trading and commodities trading, you can trade crude oil. You hear people that trade crude oil or trade natural gas, and they largely are trading just a financial product where you're just directionally putting bets on that the price is going to go up or the price is going to go down. But behind that, there's the actual logistics that gets the crude converted into a gasoline that you pump in your car, that gets the crude into like the plastic that that water bottle is made out of, right? Like that's made from crude more than likely. Could potentially be a recycled product or something, but like all the plastics, all the latex, the tires, you know, it's funny that, you know, you hear about like, you know, Tesla, for example, you know, and, and wanting to be green is like, okay, well, where are you going to get the tires from? Because that's crude oil. So if you shut down crude operations, <laughs> you don't have tires. So I don't know where your Tesla is going to go, but you need the tire on it, you know? And so like, there's all these political things that happen with energy that's interesting in its own. But as far as trading is concerned, we buy and sell the physical molecule from a production point and production hubs that we then find markets, people that consume it. So power plants burn natural gas to generate electricity. You have manufacturing that burns natural gas to run processes to boilers to do processes to you know, boil water and stuff. You have obviously home heating. So most people, when they turn their heater on, is natural gas that's actually lighting up the furnace and things like that. So natural gas is a commodity energy product that's a byproduct of mostly crude production, but it does exist in its own. And it's a commodity that we use for energy. And so we say, you know, you buy low, sell high. Well, I can buy gas in a location, transport it to another location and collect a premium and cover my cost of doing so. There's a big network across the U.S. No one knows that those pipelines exist until someone drills into it and it blows up. But there is a major network of, you know, thousands and thousands of miles of pipeline that is dug underneath the ground. That is how it gets to our houses. That is how it gets distributed and consumed. So those pipelines lease capacity for you to actually transport the molecule. So I can contract with the pipeline to have the right to move molecule through it for a period of time at a set cost. And so then I can put trading positions on that allow me to capture location spread. You know, if you start capturing the spreads, if you're anticipating the market and you're saying this point is going to devalue over time, that point is going to appreciate over time, you can lock in a transportation rate and over time see that profit increase because the price differential gets bigger. So you can pay 25 cents to move something that eventually becomes a dollar's worth. And then you just buy here, sell here and collect a dollar, pay the pipeline 25 cents. And so you can make a lot of money in the logistics of moving natural gas around the country, as well as saying, I think the price is too low. I'm going to buy it, put it in the ground, store it, wait till it gets higher and then sell it. And you can also have time spreads as well as locational spreads in the physical market. And then you can also trade financially where you're just guessing directionally which way the price is going, just like a stock. And you can short it, you can buy puts, you can do all kinds of different products. It's a pretty complex system. Uh, it's pretty regulated. But it's fairly efficient and transparent in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of people doing it. And, you know, if I make money, more than likely someone else lost money. That's the general, it's a zero-sum game, right? So generally, someone either lost opportunity to sell it for a higher price, or they sold it thinking it was going to go down and the price goes up and now they have a true loss. So it's a pretty big trading operation that, you know, that exists in, in the space. And that happens across corn, across wheat, steel, any commodity that people you know, eggs, cows, like people sell cattle as a commodity in yeah. bulk. And so, you know, it has its, its own price. And what drives cattle prices, food prices, corn, is a lot of similar things that drive energy prices. You know, whether if it's a drought, well, you know, beef is going to get expensive. 
and you know energy is going to potentially get expensive because there's no water to create hydro energy and so i mean there's all these other things that they go into play but you know weather is a big factor of what we do in trading and you know we have a lot of things that affect supply and demand the market is never in equilibrium it's always looking for equilibrium and so it's always trading towards a direction that it thinks is equilibrium but it can never really find it and so it's your job to figure out as a trader what direction is the market trying to find equilibrium to so that you can put the opposite trade on and then see it go there and then get out before it starts reversing because it's always fluctuating. All right. That was phenomenal. That was like the most like actual <laughs> real no bullshit explanation. I feel like sometimes you guys are like, yeah, I do this thing. I'm like, okay, how do you do it? That was awesome. That was a cool way. That was really interesting to learn. <laughs> a few things on that I was curious about. What are some of the best and worst stories of some trades that you've done? Yeah. I'll start with the worst story. So I had a view in the market, say that West Texas production was going to continue to outgrow its capacity to export the gas. So in West Texas is one of the largest production hubs or production fields in the country. And I had a trade on that I was expecting price there to collapse because we knew the rate that production was going to grow at. We knew how much capacity to export out of the region that existed. We knew that producers were going to have to almost give it away, if not pay you to move the molecule, because the production there is a byproduct of crude. And so if crude is coming out and gas is coming out, you make your money on crude, you don't make your money on gas. So you're willing to give the gas away, even though it has true value, because you're making your money on the crude side. So we expected gas to collapse there. And I went to Spain to watch Real Madrid play Barcelona at the Bernabeu. And we get this news that COVID outbreaks happening. Like, you know, it's, it's been sort of in the news, not really, but then the world is going to start shutting down. I am in Spain and I'm watching crude collapse. It's collapsing tens, $20. And so immediately I'm like, oh crap, if crude collapses, production in West Texas is going to stall for crude and the natural gas that I'm short is going to appreciate because now there is no byproduct because production has stopped. And so. We saw my book just lose millions of dollars overnight because people started panicking that the crude production that this gas is associated with was going to get shut in. And it, in fact, did get shut in to a large degree. So something that I thought was going to go to zero then went to like $4 when it was sitting at $2. So I lost a ton of money. And we had to make a decision like, what do we do? Like, we need to get out of position. And so I would say one of the best stories is as a trader, is that I saw that fact that if crude is actually shut in, there's no reason why gas is to be still this cheap. So I then bought myself out of the position and doubled down the opposite way and went long the molecule and then made all that money times like five. So everything that I lost, I multiplied it by completely reversing my view all in a matter of like a month. And so we ended up making a ton of money out of it because I completely reversed my view and that my position and all happened very quickly. But that was one of the craziest stories in my trading career that everything fundamentally pointed to this price collapsing. And then something happens in the world that just completely changes everything. One variable in anything can alter your view you know, quickly. And it's just like, how quickly can you react? How quickly can you process it? Information is key. And ultimately, the person that's the quickest to react to information is the one that truly ends up, you know, profiting the most. Do you think with ballpark, how much you lose in ballpark, how much you gain in that? Oh man, I think as a book in that particular time period, I lost something like sixty million dollars in a matter of like three weeks. 
That's insane, yeah. dude. The volatility, I mean, the amount of, you know, obviously the volume that I was exposed to and things like that. And obviously then we reverted that and ended up up on a year quite a bit. So up, you said like a few times that. So yeah. like a few hundreds of millions. There was fluctuations throughout the year. That particular position reverted. I lost in some other ones, but I ended up probably making back like 180 million after being down a ton of money. You're doing something differently, right? Because if everyone goes who watches the videos and becomes an energy trader, what's your mindset? What are you telling yourself? People trade off of charts. They trade off of spreadsheets. They do all kinds of data analysis and studies and have all these analysts that give them all these like reports on what to do. I majorly trade on gut feeling and I trust myself and I feel the pulse of the market. And if I think it's trending one direction, I go along with it. And when I start feeling that it's trending a different direction, I start reducing my risk. As I'm trading, I am constantly trying to figure out which direction is the market going and kind of thinking to myself, like, how confident am I in the position that I have? And so every single day, that confidence calibrates because the market changes and goes for you. And you're like, okay, it got to a point where I thought it could reach. Can it keep going? Or is this the point where I start reversing? And every day you have to recalibrate, you know, that viewpoint of what changed overnight, what changed today, what changed five minutes ago. The market is constantly moving based on information. You're constantly thinking to yourself, do you believe in the position today? I go to a lunch, I come back, the market's down, and I got to figure out, like, why is the market so down? And then once I process the information of what potentially could have the market down, because you never really know, there's some big information or big news that come out that you know exactly where the market moved because the timing was perfect. That news is actually bullish or bearish. But you're constantly reviewing and saying, okay, the market's here now. Can it go farther down or will it bounce back? And if it's going to go farther down, what does that mean to my position? Does it profit or does it lose money? And at what point do you, you know, you start getting out of the positions? Like, so I'm constantly just thinking to myself, how do I feel about my position in the market's current state? And every single day, every single minute, you're sort of recalibrating it and processing it in your head and figuring out what to do. If someone was young in their career, or even old in their career, and they're like, yo, I want to be a millionaire, would you recommend energy trading as a way of getting rich? Obviously, a way, it pays really well. It's challenging. It's not for everyone. There's a lot of professions like, say, being a doctor is not for everyone. Like, I couldn't imagine myself cutting someone open and doing anything. Like, I'd freak <laughs> out and, like, leave the person there. It's just not for everyone. It's very challenging. It's very competitive. So when you enter a trading company, for example... You don't start in trading generally. You start as an analyst in something and you quickly realize that every person in that company wants to be a trader. And so you may have a hundred person shop that has five traders, eight traders, and every single person wants that job. And those traders aren't necessarily going anywhere. It's something to aspire to. And it is a great way to generate wealth, but it's also a great way to be stressed out and, you know, lose your mind over just the stresses of the market. Some people freak out when they're up and they freak out even more when they're down. And so, it is a high stress, high paced environment. Expectations are high because if you work for a trading company, like you're the one person that's making money for the company. Everybody else is there to support you. If you're the, say, Kevin Durant, like they expect you to drop 40 every night because the entire franchise is there to support you. When you're the F1 driver, they have a thousand people who are doing their job every day to put you in that seat on Sunday and it's your job to perform. So the amount of pressure that those drivers have is huge. And so that's the way trading is. It's you're the only person for the company in the trading organization that can actually make money. And you're 1%, 2% of probably the entire company. Generally, you have a lot of support staff, legal staff, accounting, risk, mid-office, you know, marketing, administrative to allow 
a handful of traders to actually try to make money. So it's a really high stress job. I fortunately don't stress about anything and I'm like the coolest dude in the room. It doesn't matter if I'm way up or way down, like you couldn't tell the difference. But there's people that freak out at losing $10,000. How do you do that? Honestly, I don't know. That's the way I live life. Like I lose a dollar. I'm like, oh, it's yeah. over. I'm on the yeah. street. Exactly. And that's how some people are like that way. And like as smart as you may be, as much as you may know about trading, if you can't stand losing money or making money and you stress about both, like it's just not going to be something that you're going to be probably extremely successful at or happy doing. So for me, fortunately, I just don't stress about anything. And I don't know if it's like the things that I've been through, if it's personality, if it's just outright confidence and knowing that I'm going to be right one way or another. I just don't stress out over anything. Things happen. Things break. You know, people hit your car. You know, I just don't stress about anything. I think that that helps me a lot in my profession. That's why I've been so successful at it, is that I think I can withstand a much more higher tolerance of stress and risk than most people can. Someone can put the exact same chat as I did, but the volume that they did it for is a fraction of what I did, or they got out way sooner before they truly saw the trade play out. So something that they made 10,000 on, maybe I made a million on, and it was the exact same view, the exact same timing, and it's just a matter of like size and the position and I, the fact that I was able to hold it for a few more days because you, once you made 10,000, you were happy and you're like, I can't lose this 10,000, and you get out of the trade. Well, I'm like, well, I want to make a million, so I'm not going to get out at 10,000. I'm not going to get out at 100 because my view is that it's going to make a million. And so then, you know, if I start losing some, I have to recalibrate. Is something changing in the market? But people do trade at different scales and different tolerances. And so for me, fortunately, just I'm able to manage quite a better risk without any stress. You can't teach that, you know? I was hoping you could. (laughs) (laughs) All you can teach people is like how to manage stress. You can't teach him like not to feel stress. And I literally feel no stress. How much do top energy traders make? Honestly, it just depends. I would say the average trader probably makes like a million bucks a year. Uh, you have guys that, and guys and girls that make, I would say on the low end, if you're an energy trader, a gas trader, uh, you probably have a salary on average of like $200,000 a year. And then you get bonus differently. Some companies do it as a pool based on how the company does. Other people do it as a percentage of book. I work as a percentage of book. So whatever you make, whatever you kill, you take home a percentage of. But yeah, I mean, you can make 200K plus. There's people that have made a billion before working for themselves as a fund, whatever. But I would say on average, a million or two is going to be sort of like what your average trader probably makes for a firm. So the trading, that was super fascinating to hear. So you've done trading and then you kind of like invest that money in all these other businesses. Can you just walk through all the different businesses? Because I think that that's also a good lesson for a lot of people out there about sure. so many different things, whiskey, golf clubs, construction, racing. So my first investment was actually, and it's probably one of the worst ones that I've made at this point, I invested in an automotive franchise, you know, auto repair shop. At the time, to help my dad, he'd been in the oil and gas industry himself. And it was a, one of the downturns of the industry where all the service companies were getting shut down, crew was low. And so it was challenging to find a job in the space of what he was doing. But he eventually was laid off when the company that he worked for got sold to somebody else to consolidate. And he asked me, like, hey, if you want to invest in something, let me know. I'd be happy to help you run it. And I was like, okay, Dad, well, you know, what do you want to run? And he's like, I don't know, either a car dealership or like an auto repair shop. And I was like, okay, well, auto repair shop it is because I think it sounds easier if I just go franchise it and they teach us everything. So I invested in that and my dad still runs it to this day. And that was like five, six years ago. And it just hasn't made money, right? So it's like, okay, I tried it. It's just a hard industry. 
If you're there operating it yourself, it makes you a nice living. If you're an absentee investor and you have to pay everybody to run it, it doesn't make a whole ton of money. The time that you have to dedicate to it to what you actually get out of it is probably not worth my time at this point, right? So it's just like, you know, I kind of have put it aside and I don't really worry too much about it. But then I invest in a company called Sphere. Sphere.club is the social media handle. And the concept is a soccer and spark fitness business. So my buddy, who I became good friends with, was the founder, Michael Chabala. He's a two-time MLS champion, 10-year career in the MLS. He missed the locker room feel and the brotherhood that he felt with the players and decided to start a concept that kind of replicates that locker room feel. So everything about the class and the locker room is sort of replicating what you would feel in a club. And it's obviously, it's boys and girls, you know, men and women. It's all about fitness and community and bonding with people, not so much about the exercise itself, but about the experience of bonding in the community and actually, you know, doing an exercise. So it's soccer inspired. You don't have to play soccer or anything like that, which is welcoming to a lot of people. Another company that I've invested is Nine Bandit Whiskey here in town. Yeah, so I love Nine Bandit. You got presented as an opportunity like four or five years ago, and I've invested now in a few rounds with them. I'm not heavily involved with them, but you know, from time to time we do touch base, get updates, and it's a brand that I actually love the whiskey for. So I decided to invest in it. I've invested in real estate, so I own a bit of real estate in Houston and the surrounding areas. I have a construction company, Maximo Builders, is a company that we started about three years ago now, and uh, we do mostly commercial renovations and ground out builds. That company I started with a buddy of mine who'd been in construction. He was looking for a new gig. And so I hired him to help me stand up the construction business and operate it. So he's still doing that. I invested in a company called Random Golf Club. Eric Lang, the founder, I invested in that company recently. And that's all about creating communities in the golf community space and kind of connecting people and going to different experiences all over the world, really, to get around a golf in. See what else? Rafa Racing. People call me Rafa. It's short for, for Rafael. And we came up with the acronym, Race as Family Always. And so what I wanted to get out of that was when I first went to the track a couple of years ago and fell in love with the actual driving, not the sport, but the actual driving of it, never been on a track, never grew up with a racing background. I craved the community aspect of it when I wasn't at the track. So like on a Tuesday at four in the afternoon, I was like, like I feel like doing something car related or automotive or like racing. And there was nothing in town. So I decided to start up a country club equivalent of golf or tent or racket club with racing. So we have a facility in Houston, 40,000 square feet, that's going to have professional simulators in town with coaching, training. We're going to run leagues with iRacing or some other gaming. Uh, we're going to do training and actual travel to the different tracks and coaching to you know get people developed into semi-pro. I have a pro that I'm going to be racing in Europe this year. And it's really just showing people that they can enjoy the sport you know, a lot of people don't know that they can. I didn't know I could. I never knew I could get on Coda, you know, here at Circular Makers in town until two years ago when I stepped foot on it and realized it. And I was like, you know, there's got to be so many people. And we've come across a ton of people who didn't know they could do it and now are part of the club and helping us, you know, kind of move forward. And, you know, we're in Houston now, expanding to Austin probably in 2024. And it's really just about community, family enjoying the sport, doing a lot of stuff like going to F1 events, going to races, traveling as a group. People identify us very quickly at the track because when we come, we have 12, 15 drivers and like 30 people there just to support us. It's just a big family when we're there. Obviously, I think that's when we met and you saw us, like just a big community. And you go through every other garage and it's like four dudes, two girls, a dude, 
here and there, but like when you go out to ours, it's like 40 people. I think that that community aspect of it, people have really fallen in love with and is really, you know, getting a lot of traction and it's something that doesn't exist. We haven't found anywhere that's been able to take proof of concepts and put them all under one roof. So people have racing as a concept. You have cars and coffee as a concept. You have, you know, sim racing, like simulator racing, and you have all these different rallies and all these different things that you can do in a car community, but no one has it under one roof. And we've been able to find a way to bond it all together. And people like are really, you know, from all kinds of angles want to be part of it. Racing is expensive. How do you like to enjoy it? You know, I like clothes. I love the designer clothes. You know, like you can buy a pair of jeans, but if you buy a designer pair of jeans, they actually do feel and fit differently. Just the amount of design time that goes into it, at least contouring of, of clothing is. So I spend money on clothes, travel, and mainly cars at this point. So I enjoy giving my money away, actually. Like I love helping people and taking care of people. And, you know, I don't expect anything back, but I enjoy the, the ability to help someone have a life changing experience. So, like last year, I took all my best friends and my sister and, and my brother and their significant others to Monaco. And we were on a yacht. And I just told all like, hey, we're going to Monaco in May. Make sure you book it. And it was like all expenses paid. I took everybody with me. Because like I always wanted to go to Monaco, watch it on TV. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go and experience that with my wife by ourselves. Like, how boring is that? Like, I want all of my loved ones to have like a once-in-a-lifetime type of experience. So like I enjoyed and loved the fact that I was able to do that for them, right? And it didn't change my life. Unfortunately, like, I am at the position now that I can have those experiences and I have to think about it and have to worry about how I'm going to pay the bills if I make this expense. And it's really just, you know, investing in, in life experiences and unforgettable things, you know, and that's the one thing that money has allowed me to do is really have unforgettable life experiences and the freedom to never worry about paying my bills kind of thing. And, you know, I think that that freedom and that stress is what probably is the most challenging thing that people deal with. It's money. And if people say money doesn't bring happiness, but not having it, it's really challenging and it brings unhappiness. And so, you know, if you learn to use it as a tool to make life better, to help people, to find some of the ways that you can invest that money in life experiences, not just monetary things, I think that that's what money does. You know, you can find ways to be happy by investing in those type of experiences. Buying a nice watch is only going to last that moment. It doesn't necessarily bring you happiness. Like investing in a vacation for people that otherwise wouldn't be there. That's cool. It's kind of some of the things that I've been doing. So yeah, life experiences, cars. I love cars. So I have a decent sized car collection and I enjoy it. And one of the things that I've always told myself growing up and as I became a professional was like, I'm always going to have a car note because I wake up every morning and go to work so I can drive whatever car I want. Cars have always been my thing. And so I've always swapped cars every year, every two years. And then I started accumulating them. And that's the one thing that I still, it, it drives me to this day is, like, there's a new car that comes out. I want to be able to buy it and I have to worry about whether I can afford it or not. So I got to continue to work so I can continue to have that pleasure of buying whatever car I want. And it's obviously, you know, that feeds into racing now that I race. It's an expensive sport, but it doesn't impact my life, fortunately. So I don't think about, you know, the fact that a set of tires is 2000 bucks and I go through them in one day because, like, this is why I go to work for. And I've been fortunate to create enough wealth that I can enjoy it in that way and, and, and truly, you know, be passionate about the sport and not be concerned about whether I can afford to actually pursue it or practice it. A few questions on that. How much is it? Is this a Hublot or what kind of It's a Hublot, yeah. How much is this one? This was like, I don't know, $40,000, I think. It's also like scratched up. It's like you wear like a regular normal person. No, I bang it up. I I wear it every day to work out, to do anything. People have told me they shouldn't drive with it because it messes up the timing. I haven't seen it happen yet. But yeah, I mean, I wear it everywhere. 
And how much would you value your car collection right now? And some of these cars that are in it, and maybe the most expensive one. The most expensive one, actually, I just took delivery of. It's a Hennessy Venom F5. That's probably like a $2.7 million car. I have a P1 that's delivered miles. And it's probably in that range, 2.5, 2.7 million. My car collection is probably 15, 18 million, probably, maybe more. Thereabouts. A lot of toys. And I drive them all. Like, I love driving my cars. So I drive them all the time. I'm glad it gives you joy. Sometimes we think that, like, I buy some of the nicer watches to commemorate. And almost never really gives me actual joy. Yeah. I think it's just like having a nice meal or some of these things we talk about. Like, we went to Monaco. I was like, this is pretty cool. It's definitely just, it's like some of these things, what actually gives you joy. It could be cars. It's not like there's a wrong one. It's just, oh, no. Yeah. I mean, some, some people love boating and they have, like, to me, having a boat, I know wouldn't bring me joy. So, like, I don't have a boat, you know, but I have 25 cars and I enjoy driving all of them. <laughs> and I rotate every day some days. Dude, that's crazy. And every other day I'm in a different car and I go to the hassle, like, oh, I got to go to the garage and swap cars <laughs> and I got to move them around. But I actually drive them and enjoy them and I bring them to the track. I like that your and, problem is like your million dollar car. Like, I have to go get it out yeah. of the garage. Like, this is the worst. Yeah. And, like, and to me, like, it's materialistic things. So, if something happens to them, like, I don't get so worried. So, people are like, you know, how can you like, give all that your keys i'm like because i don't care if they bang it i just get it fixed and it is what it is but like i don't want to have to go park my car if i'm gonna pull up in a ballet in a sense right they're there for a reason to provide a service you know we go to the track and i'll take five six of my cars and i just hand friends and family keys and they go drive them and they're like are you sure i'm like yeah dude, don't worry about it like drive it like you normally would don't worry about it. like it's valid because i don't care if something happens to the car like i'm not going to be sitting here crying and stressing over it. like we'll fix it and we'll move on I want to make sure that things that I've been able to achieve and get to enjoy, people close to me get to enjoy them as well. Because like, there's no sense in me just being the one that enjoys it and everybody's just sitting there watching me do it. Yeah. So like, you know, I, I bring everybody in and, and, and get them to enjoy it as well. I can vouch for that. When I got to meet you at the track, you have like a million dollar car. You're like, yeah, sit. Yeah, to enjoy. I was like, you don't mind saying? It's like, and you were, you were really generous and I really appreciate it. Yeah. That. I mean, that's why I give people rides. I let people drive them. You know, again, like, because it's not my only car because it's, the materialistic aspect of it isn't what gives me joy, is the actual driving of it that gives me joy. And so to me, if something happens to it, that's a dollar amount to fix. Like, you know, it is what it is. It, it's not about the materialistic part of it. It's actually like the experience of driving a car. So you're here in Austin for this weekend doing racing. Like how much do you think you, it costs you just to race? And there's no prizes or anything. It's just, yeah, there's no prizes. really just an enthusiast event. It's like a, almost bragging rights. But, you know, I bring the whole crew. I have six techs. I've hired a tech from McLaren engineer to help me support it. I've hired a suspension engineer. Because, like, you know, we want to win it. Particularly, I'm a big McLaren brand ambassador in a sense. Uh, they don't pay me anything to do it. I just love the brand. And, you know, I have nine other cars. So, like, I want McLaren to be the one that wins it. And so I want to make sure that the car is fully set up as much as we can. So with the crew, transportation of being here, the lodging, the tires. Tires actually, as a sum, is the most expensive thing that you run through all the time. But, you know, it's probably a twenty dollars $25,000 weekend coming, drive the car for a few minutes. <laughs> we were not going to drive the car in more than 30 minutes this weekend in total, thereabouts. Um, what kind of car does your wife drive? So she has a uh, a big body Escalade, the uh, ESV, the 2022. She loves it. She likes my cars and she's driven some of them. But she's not really a car person. I think she likes to see them and appreciates the style, but she doesn't really get enjoyment out of driving. So she has you know, all the keys of this. She can take whatever car she wants, but you know, she just likes driving it. And then Escalade. And she loves it. As you made your money, like how did you give back to your parents? How did I give back to them? Yeah, or how did you take care of them as you started making money? 
I've been giving him money since I started actually working. So every year when I got my bonus, some form of bonus, I was giving money. I always paid for things, paid for the vacations, paid for the cars. Again, like last year, we did a whole patio thing, pool thing in the backyard. That was, I don't know, $180,000 to like do the whole backyard. And my mom got to choose everything, anything she wanted. And so, you know, I take care of them in that way. And at this point, they both work for us or for me, you know, supporting the businesses. So they're making more than they ever have. And they have the freedom to come and go as they please. And, you know, it's funny because my mom is always like, hey, I'm going to be a little bit late. I'm like, I don't care, mom. Like, it's fine. <laughs> She's like, hey, I overslept. I'm going to be a little, like an hour late. Is that cool? I'm like, mom, I don't care. Like, this is why you work for us. And for me, it's just because, like, you don't have anything to stress about. And so, you know, obviously, they still perform their jobs and do the things that they have to do and get it done. But, yeah, they work for us now. Where do you think you would be today if you didn't move to the U.S.? Oh man, that's, that's a hard question because I have no idea how we will have ended up in El Salvador. I mean, you could have easily ended up dead. You know, they were kidnapping people for a hundred bucks. It's just crazy. I think we will have found a way to become a professional of some form. So if I didn't come to the U.S., I'd probably be a professional El Salvador living a modest life. There isn't really a way to get rich in El Salvador unless you come from money, which we didn't. So I probably would have just had a professional job as an engineer or something, probably making decent money for the status quo, you know, kind of your typical for the standard of living that you know that most people have i imagine that's probably what i would have been but i yeah coming here obviously has been completely life-changing what is the american dream to you what does it mean honestly the american dream is to like have the freedom to do whatever you want without you know without really stressing and you know being in, in, in a position that you feel that you can't afford to do something that you can't afford to like give back to support your family to worry about retirement the fact that i know for a fact I will never be poor. It's a big stress reliever. The fact that I know I can be 75 years old and I'll be figuring out like what home and what bed am I staying in? Who's going to help me? Who's going to feed me? That I think is part of the reason that, you know, in my head, I always knew I'm going to be rich enough to like never have to worry about money. Like I'm always going to work till I die in a sense to make sure that I never had the stress of money because I know that that has been such a big stress in my family. It's a big stress in friends and family that I still have. And so, you know, people always see what I do and then, you know, almost want to compare themselves in a sense. It's like, well, you can't do it. So I always have to keep a lot of people just aware, like, hey, like, you know, what I have doesn't mean anything. You don't have to tell me you can't afford to go on vacation with us. Like, I'll buy your flight. Like, no, no, don't buy my flight. Like, no, dude, like, you're coming with us. And I don't want the stress of you coming to celebrate my birthday in Vegas to put a stress in your life. But you not being is not going to be the same for me. You're coming with us and I don't want you to stress about it. Don't say you owe me anything. I want to live that experience with you there. I don't want to like put the stress in your life because I happen to have a different wealth level that doesn't stress me. Right. So instead of going down to a bar and having two beers, I want you to fly to Vegas and like have a bottle with me at the club and don't want you to feel that you have to like contribute. Things like that are, to me, having achieved obviously the American dream of knowing that I can support and not be stressed out and you know, that I can lose money, make money, and my life doesn't really change. That, I think, is what this world of opportunity provides, is the ability to create that financial freedom. And obviously, the fact that here you can be who you want to be, you know, you don't have to align with a certain political or religious view, that you're not prosecuted for thinking and looking a certain way, uh, like the way that you are in other countries or, or in other cultures. It's really politically polarized here and, you know, racism and prejudice and all that stuff still exists, but it's much better place to live than anywhere in the world. 
all these things still exist everywhere else. If you're going to exist in something like this, you want to do it here because the whole world is jacked up. <laughs> you know, like anywhere you go in the world, you're going to have your prejudices, whether it's social, whether it's, you know, the way you look or how you speak or, you know, your background or, you know, whatever it is, it exists everywhere in the world. It's just not a place that doesn't really exist. And so, you know, just coming here and being able to take advantage and enjoy the freedom that you actually do get here as an individual. Do you think the American dream is still alive today? I think so. I mean, I think that there's still opportunities there for anyone that wants to work hard. I think that a lot of things have happened socially that have broken the barrier for women, for minorities, for immigrants to achieve great things. Obviously, it's not always easy and you're always going to have to have an uphill battle. You know, certain industries are potentially harder to climb the ladder or move up. But generally, I think that a good work ethic Having the desire to educate yourself doesn't necessarily mean go to college, but like learn a profession, learn music, learn how to write, learn to paint, learn to drive car, learn to be, you know, whatever you are, you know, a plumber. But if you can learn the business side of your profession, anyone has the opportunity to start their own business. And there's still quite a bit of support from the government and, and other places that you know, that you can lean on. It's just really about educating yourself and what your resources are. So I think if you make the best of the resources that are available to you, anyone can achieve great things. And just, I think most people don't take advantage of those resources. I think that everyone always takes for granted the value of time. People value monetary things that you can touch. You can't touch time. But every day that you don't do something is a day that you lose in getting where you want to be, right? So if you took a day off and you didn't do anything, that's a dollar less that you're going to earn because you took a day off. And so like, I don't take days off. You know, I work 24-7 and people make fun of me for it and give me a hard time. But like in my head, it's just like, I don't have a reason to take a day off. Like I don't feel the stress. You know, some days I'm more tired than others, but I think that there's enough resources in the world, enough relationships that you can build in the world that if you truly want to achieve and learn to take advantage of those resources, whatever those are, the dream is there and it's attainable. How do you think being an immigrant helped you? And then how do you think if you're not an immigrant, you can have the immigrant advantage? I think being an immigrant helped me in the sense that I've seen what it's like to live in another country. I've seen what it's like to live in a poor country and grow up poor, if you will. And so having the comparison of what it's like to just even come here and be poor here is compared to other countries, that alone, I think, taught me anyways. I needed to take advantage of the opportunity that I was given to be here. And so that advantage that I think a lot of people grow up here in a suburb and they have no idea what like kids their age are suffering or going through in a country like El Salvador or, you know, in ghettos. I think about it just like when I watch Ukraine and I watch, you know, what some of the African countries have gone through in the Middle East and all these wars are happening that were way worse than what I went through in El Salvador. I think about like, man, I can't imagine being a parent in Ukraine, figuring out what to do with your five-year-old and what the five-year-olds are going through and like what life experiences they're going to get that if they actually made it to the U.S., they're going to be like, I'm not going to give this opportunity up. And so I think that that value that I learned as a kid and experiencing those things is one of the things that still drives me today is, you know, I just know the value of the opportunity. And I think people take that for granted. How do you think someone who's not an immigrant could learn the immigrant advantage? I honestly think that if you don't take life for granted, if you don't take what's been given you for granted, if you travel the world and go see how people live, 
you're going to appreciate what we have and, and what you're given here. You know, the roads, the schools, the food, the climate. Go to the middle of some of these countries and see what people live like. You know, the trash everywhere, the slums, the pollution. When you drive around some of these countries, like you look out the window and the car and your cab and you're like, man, this is like a rough place. And to them, like, this is life. Like, they think it's normal. Then you come back to the States and if you don't actually like put that into perspective to what you have, I'll think that you'll never learn to appreciate what that immigrant mentality is. So I'll think that if, you know, if you take a step back and you were born here and you have all the benefits and the pleasures that you've been given here and, and obviously all the, the opportunities, it's hard to put into perspective until you actually travel to some of those places and truly study and picture yourself there. Not just like, you know, go grab a taco and be like, oh, they make such a great street tacos. But like, imagine that guy's life that's there making a taco. Things like that can be ways that you can relate. And obviously, you know, some people are raised more entitled than others. So there's still poverty in the U.S. There's still people that struggle with paying the bills that bounce from house to house. They get evicted all the time whose parents can't afford to feed them. And that's one of the things that I've always had is just, you know, you dream big and then you just work to get there. Because if you don't have a big dream to achieve, you don't open yourself up to the possibilities, you know, that are presented in front of you. And so I think that, you know, you can have that mentality of an immigrant and consider your surrounding a different country. You know, like I live in this, you know, torn down neighborhood. I got to find my way out of it. And so like I need to immigrate to a nicer neighborhood. What steps do you have to take to achieve the ability to live in a nicer neighborhood? That's a way to be able to relate and, and kind of achieve what some of the immigrants that come here with such hunger and drive, they know what it's like to be back home. Yeah. If someone here wanted to make a million dollars, that was their dream in life, what would you recommend to them? First and foremost, I'd say, obviously, you know, you got to have a good work ethic. Lottery only happens <laughs> once a week. and you know, Most people aren't going to ever win the lottery. I think working hard and having a good work ethic is always going to be the best way to go. But ultimately, what most people fail to do in life is find what they're good at, what they're passionate about, whatever that is. And so if you are so fortunate to explore different things, and find what you're good at, what you're fortunate, you know, to be like, you know, some people are terrible at math and, you know, they insist to try to pursue like some form of math career or something with numbers. Like, well, if you're a creative, then like go find what in that creative world you're good at. Are you good at music? Are you good at writing? Are you good at designing clothes? Are you designing, you know, at painting or different things? I think that people sometimes grow up with the mindset of like, this is what my parents did or this is what society wants me to do. And don't ever truly explore what they're good at. Every human can make incredible things if you just focus on what you're good at. Like, I can tell you that no matter how much I paint, it's always going to look bad. Like, no matter how much I draw, it's going to be terrible. I can't make myself be, you know, a, a Grammy singer or actor, like, whatever. Like, I can't sing. So no matter how many lessons I take singing, I'm never going to be a professional singer. But if I would desire to be a singer and I waste my time forever doing it, I'm always going to be living out of my car. If I have a car, I'll be living on someone's couch. And there's so many people that continue to do it. And it's like, dude, like you can sing, but like not professionally, you're probably better at like writing lyrics. So if you just focus on simply writing lyrics and you were a great lyrical person and then you sold those, you could be one of the greatest lyrical artists or, you know, lyrical writers in the world. But you're so focused about wanting to be the singer, not being the writer. I think that there's so many things like that in life. That if people just found what they're good at and focused on it and just worked hard at it, you know, anyone can really become a millionaire because like the world is so big and the markets are so massive that all you got to do is get a dollar from a million people out of like eight billion. 
I mean, like, if you just walk around every single day asking for a dollar and you saved it and not wasted it, like, you can get to a million dollars pretty easily. And it's hard to believe that, but, like, you can actually do it in a matter of a couple of years. Imagine if you actually worked hard, you know, put it in, invested it, and use the resources. Like, it's, it's actually, you know, not that difficult. I think the hardest part is figuring out what is it that you have about you, your personality, your skill set that can actually get you there because you can waste your time in a lot of ways that, you know, that don't get you anywhere. How can someone find their passion and figure out what it is that people respond to, people want? For me, like I, you know, I started engineering. I wanted to design planes and I love the engineering, the math aspect of it. And I kind of stumbled into finance via a friend that he was working full time and engineering was too much work for him. You know, he was here by himself. His parents were, were in Mexico and him and I were good friends. We were carpooling to, uh, to University of Houston together and we were going through engineering together. And because he was working full time to sustain himself, it was like, man, this homework's way too much. I need to go to the business school because I've heard it's easier math. And so he went there and I was in the lobby waiting for him, kind of looking through these brochures and stumbled across this energy program that they had started that required a lot of the math and advanced science that engineering did as a basics. I kept studying and looked into it and did some research. At the time, I didn't even realize that Houston was like an energy hub of the country or the world. I didn't know that. And so as I studied this program and did some research, I actually went to the school and talked to them. And to them, hearing an engineer potentially going to the business school was like music to their ears because like that's kind of the profile of candidate they were trying to attract was someone to go into business that had more of an engineering mindset because they could really focus in this energy program that required advanced math and science. And so I kind of stumbled into it and fell in love with markets and finance. And, you know, I took the different electives and I was mythological and, you know, purposeful in the way that I elected him. So I took corporate finance. And I was like, oh, that kind of sucks. I hate financial statements. I took, you know, like investments. I was like, yeah, that's a little bit more interesting in the way that you look at investments and, you know, evaluating deals. And then I took like futures and options and markets and economics. And I was like, okay, like, that's my stuff. Like that I clicked with. I loved that it. it was exciting. It came natural to me. So a lot of times what comes natural to you is actually what you're good at. And I think people try to become something that they're not and ignore the fact that they're really good at something else. But to them, that just becomes fun and easy. So they don't realize like if that's actually what you focus on, you probably could be the best at it. So to me, it was just, you know, trial and error through school and really focusing on like, what do I want to get out of my career, my life and trying different things. And, you know, people get stuck in jobs that they hate just because he pays the bills. And it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, you're never going to get to like be a millionaire because if you hate your job and you hate what you do, you're not going to go to work with a good attitude. You know, your work is going to tell that you are not passionate about what you do. You know, you're not going to be at the top of the list of people that are going to get promoted. No matter how hard you work at something you hate, it's not as great as doing something with the same effort or something that you love. So I would say be more open-minded and more purposeful in life is one thing that people, I think, ignore. And I put it into this simple perspective. Like, imagine if you have your childhood friends. You may have five guys and girls or whatever that you grew up with since you were in high school, middle school. And like, they're still like your core friends, which is my case, right? I have a lot of friends that I've built over time and I'm easy to make friends with because I just like people and trust people and surround myself with good people. So I make friends really easily. But I still have my core friends from high school that we're like, they're my boys, right? They're my best friends. We hang out all the time. Wives are friends with each other. Like, you know, some of them have married each other's sisters. That tight knit. You can sit there at the dinner table and look at like all your best friends and the life that you've lived together for the last 20 years. And then if you think about just one thing changing, what if your parents decided to move to a different house instead of that house? 
and you went to a different school, you will have never met any of the people that made the most of you in your life. Had my parents moved to the States a year later, I don't know where I would be today because I don't know where we would have landed. You know, had I decided to go to UT instead of U of H, which was my initial intent, I would have never met my wife. I would have never studied finance because I was going to UT for aerospace engineering. So I may have been making a decent living being an engineer, but I wouldn't be where I am today had I stuck with mechanical engineering at U of H instead of switching over to finance. I would have never learned to trade. And that was probably my calling. Every little thing that you decide, even when accidents happen, people are like, I was just talking to him. What if like I had told him like, hey, come back home, he wouldn't have gotten into that accident. Or like, what if I had like delayed him leaving the house a minute later, he wouldn't have had that accident. Every single second of your life is like so purposeful and it means so much in like the grand scheme of things. I, mean, I don't know if you golf or not, but Every single degree of difference in, a, in the way that you hit the ball makes like the world of difference of where the ball ends up because it goes so far. So like, you know, you hit a golf ball and you hit it two degrees off. That may make 50 yards by the time the ball ends up. And like the pros just happen to hit it right down the middle every time. And we hit it on and off, you know, whatever. But like every single decision, every single second, every single thing that you do in the morning means so much in your life. That if you waste time and you're not purposeful about your day and what you do, that's the reason why I think people don't end up where they could is because they're not purposeful about the way that they spend their time and invest their time. And, you know, they go through it every single day, just kind of going through the motions and letting life lead them along some path that they don't control. But if they just thought about every day, like, this is what I want to achieve. If they said, like, hey, by the end of the month, I want to do this. You know, I told myself in the racing space, I've never raced in my life. I felt comfortable driving, so I like enjoyed it, and I was able to start pushing it. And like a year and a half ago, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna be a race car driver. Like I'm gonna race one day, and I'm gonna compete against the pros. And then I just worked towards it, and now I'm competing against the pros. And I've never raced in my life. If you told me I was gonna be racing in two years, I would be like, you're crazy. Like I've never raced, but here I am, right? And it's just because I made it a point that every single thing that has led up to where I am today was going to be taking a step towards like racing professionally or you know with the pros. And so, like, there's so many things that, you know, I didn't even know I could drive a car the way that I can now. But I just gave it a shot and made it a point. I was purposeful about what's it going to take to get there. Finding the resources, finding the coach, finding, you know, people that taught me how to do things. And so the resources are there. You just make use of them. Uh, there's all kinds of people that you can ask questions and reach out to you and get advice and get a connection. Like, hey, do you know anybody that does this? Yeah. And most people just don't use the resources that they have. With all the time you're racing and working and all these things, do you have any regrets or what regrets have you had uh, for maybe working so much or? I don't really live in the world of regret and like look back as much. I think that some of the things that I wish I had more time to do would say like, you know, spend more time with family and family is everything. But at the same time, I have these desires and these things I want to achieve in life. And I've always been super busy. I've always been super driven and I've always being, you know, like excited to wake up and go to work every day, just as I am excited to come home. And sometimes, you know, the work day overextends more than it should. And so trying to find a balance or a better balance is probably one of the things that I'd say, like, I kind of wish it was easier on me. And what I struggle with is that I know that if I give up my drive to work and achieve things and all that, I'd probably be equally or, you know, more unhappy about not having been productive. And that could bring stress. Being able to find a balance when you're as busy 
for everything, I think is a challenge, but you know, I think I try to do as good of a job and I'm conscious about it. So I try to be as present as I can. But, you know, sometimes I can be at a birthday party for like my daughter and I'm on the phone texting for work stuff. And like I'm present there and I am and in my head I am. But people also see me on the phone. And so like, you know, I think that being able to be more present is one of the things that I think I'm trying to be more conscious about. And maybe having that being present in certain special moments or instances in the past might be one of the things that I would say like I probably regret. You know, I probably could have been more present. But again, you know, like I necessarily can't help myself to like live the way I do, to work the way I do, to be driven and want to achieve. And it's a hard balance. You always got to like do what feels right to you for your life, regardless of like what everybody else is. And so finding that right balance of being there for the people that matter to you, that you matter to, as well as like achieving what's important to you, I think it's a challenge. And I think it's something that, I, that I've always struggled with is I literally would work 24-7 if I could. Thank you so much for coming out here. This is amazing. I think there's going to be so many people inspired to be race car drivers, to be immigrants, whether they're in the country or coming to America and just sharing a lot of wisdom with us. I think the final thing I was curious about is like your children were born here. It sounds like with a lot of hard work and privilege that you've been able to create yourself. Like what's the message you want to leave for them? One is like, you know, just don't take things for granted. And it's really just, you know, learn the value of things in life just because, you know, You've been provided something doesn't mean that it's not worth something that, you know, that you have to work for. So in the way that, you know, we're doing our best to raise them is finding ways that they feel they have to earn things, earn their iPad time, earn their ice cream. Like, hey, you don't get ice cream unless you eat dinner. And like, there's many days where they go to bed crying because they didn't get the dessert. It's like, well, you didn't eat your dinner. And so like, I think that there's a lot of things that, you know, that I'm trying to do to ensure that. They don't grow up privileged or overprivileged, and it's kind of hard to like prevent it from being privileged. Like every day, I show up with a different car. My son's like, "Hey, like, he told me like, hey, dad, you know, when you die, I'm gonna keep your car." So I'm like, "All right, son, I appreciate that. Thank you. You probably will, because like that's what the will is gonna say." But I'm just saying, finding ways to like help them not take life for granted and things for granted, is, you know, is that challenge. And I think that we at least do our best to try to ensure that they understand that you have to earn things in life and that things are just not given to you. So my message would be just don't take things for granted and learn to appreciate things. Yeah. I think one of the things as well, just uh, to everyone out there, is just like the immigrant advantage. And that's something at AppSumo.com, our company, we hire a lot of immigrants. I think over half our company is immigrants. My father's an immigrant. And there's definitely something there, whether you're here or whether you come from somewhere else about like, okay, I'm going to earn this stuff. And like, what can I learn from this group of people that have come? And I think I've done really well. And I think you're an amazing example of that. Thank you for coming on. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you, which we did. Shout out Rafa. Go give him some love on Instagram at Rafa Martinez 812, R-A-F-A Martinez 812 on Instagram. And check out Rafa's racing club, RafaRacing.club. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go racing together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan or Instagram or TikTok. I don't check TikTok. At Noah Kagan, let me know what you think of this episode or if you have any feedback. Shout out Aaron Fenton, who did send me some feedback. Also, I looked at our stats on Spotify. It's pretty cool. No one actually makes it this far in the episode. So I literally could give you my social security number. I give you my password number. I could give you a million dollars cash if you made it this far in the episode. Maybe we should do that one time. Also, go check out appsumo.com. We have products like tidycal.com, which is totally free. It's a Calendly alternative, 29 bucks for life, which you don't even have to pay for because it's free to use. We use it to book meetings with customers. I use it to book meetings with other people I work with. I use it to book meetings with customers and partners. I highly recommend it, tidycal.com. 
Finally, a couple shout outs to the amazing team who helps make this happen. Jason at podcasttech.com for doing the editing. Thank you to Jeremy, George Camp, Sasa, Nikki, Jen, Tommy, and Sylvie from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. Finally, a couple shout out to the affiliate team over at AppSumo, Erica, Megan Turner, Emily Stevens, and Nick Christensen. It's been awesome launching the ambassador program and seeing how much it's been growing. If you want to be an ambassador and you make content or you want to get paid to just talk about cool software, check out go.appsumo.com to join our affiliate program. Have a spiffy day. What's your favorite type of peanut butter? You know I'm a Jif creamy kind of guy. <laughs>